brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Hello again, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and while many of us spend our days doing whatever mundane job we signed up for, scrolling endlessly on our phones and cursing life for a lack of meaning... A lucky minority have been having rare and even sometimes routine experiences with beings that clearly are not human. Some come shrouded in robes of light with messages of love and global harmony, while others amplify fear, violate their subjects sexually, and implant them with sophisticated tracking devices as if we're being monitored on some cosmic wildlife preserve. It's hard to take the full range of stories at face value, but it's hard to chalk them all up to wild imaginations and charlatans too. Like most things, the truth is somewhere in the middle, but in this case, the middle means we are being visited by a range of entities with various motivations that have carefully kept themselves hidden from all but a selected few. Well, today's guest, Craig Campobasso, has done his damnedest to comb through the cornucopia of random and scattered accounts of ET contact, flip the script, and do the cataloging for us humans, finally, in his new book, The Extraterrestrial Species Almanac, The Ultimate Guide to Greys, Reptilians, Hybrids, and Nordics. It's the ultimate field guide to 82 extraterrestrial species that populate the universe, exploring the origins, physical characteristics, technology, consciousness abilities, dimensional capabilities, belief systems, and cosmic agendas of each race. An ambitious undertaking to say the least, but Craig has done many ambitious things, as he is also a multiple award-winning filmmaker and Emmy-nominated casting director. He's worked behind the scenes on such blockbuster film classics as Frank Herbert's Dune, directed by Stephen Lynch, and two Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, Conan the Destroyer and Total Recall. He began his casting career on Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, and he received an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Casting for a series on Picket Fences. At 26 years young, Craig experienced a life-changing spiritual awakening which kicked off his calling to write The Autobiography of an Extraterrestrial Saga, a book series with four entries so far. He also directed, wrote, and produced the short film Stranger at the Pentagon, which was adapted from the popular UFO book authored by the late Dr. Frank E. Strange's chronicling the curious case of Valiant Thor. 
A busy man making the world much more interesting, the alien almanac author and awakened alien autobiographer, Craig the Space Race Chronicler Campo Basso. Welcome to the higher side. That was so awesome. I was trying not to make any noise. <laughs> I loved your intro. That is fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, of course. Thank you for being here, man. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be fun. You know, Red Wheeler Press always sends me their catalog for upcoming releases. And when I saw the Extraterrestrial Species Almanac, I said, all right, well, I got to talk to this guy. 82 alien races, styled and profiled. Seems like a large undertaking. And I'm just curious, I've talked to many guests at this point, does this awakening event that your bio speaks of have something to do with your calling or aptitude for doing a project like this? What was this awakening event like? Well, the awakening event really did. It totally shifted who I was. It was a major spiritual awakening. And I would say... I was as asleep as you could be on planet Earth. I went to work. I did my job. I had fun with my family and friends and never thought about the greater reality or working on myself spiritually to elevate my soul sustenance and to even dream of becoming a fully conscious being. So this awakening went for a two-year period, which began in dream states with master teachers. And then it escalated to where I would wake up inside the dream with these master teachers. But all I ever felt was immense love emanating from them. I was never afraid. But it was interesting because I would wake up in the morning, I would think about it, and then it would just sort of vanish. And then it would happen again night after night after night after night. And then each segment, three segments were dream state, two months, waking up inside the dream with them, two months. And then the final stage was being in the dream state, waking up in the dream state, and then waking up in my bed and opening my eyes and seeing their astral bodies right there just emanating this beautiful light. And then the next process was actually awakening me, which these beings fed me from their hands, a golden light that went into my body and fed my cells. And it sort of opened me up to the universe and to seeing and experiencing the things and why they were created and the love behind the creation of it. It's almost like when people have a near-death experience and they go into this immense love and they say that they, they see everything in an instant. It's similar to that. So I went around for about eight months working. I had an office on Sunset Boulevard at the time, casting movies and TV. And an actor would walk in and then I could just see their soul history and I would have to excuse myself, go in the other room and I would sob literally Jeez. for 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. And these were very happy sobs, but it was a cleaning, clearing process of my own soul. This went on for eight months. I really thought it was never going to stop. It would happen anywhere from eight to 12 times a day. And it could just be anything I saw. So 
after this process, the next process was to ignite my light body. And then that meant that I could astral travel outside of Earth. And I started going to other worlds at night and being very conscious of leaving my body on Earth and going to these other worlds and observing different kinds of beings and that type of thing. And then I went through several more things. And after a period of about two years, I had written a 400-page book on my experiences at this point. And I went to Mount Shasta, took myself there as a gift for finishing this 400-page book. And upon my return, one of those master teachers said to me, what would you say if I told you you just wrote that book for yourself? And I said, then I learned an awful lot about myself. He said, now you're going to sit down and write the books that you came here to write. So I want you to sit down and I want you to keep writing and writing. And I would write them out in longhand. I want you to write and write and write until you cannot write no more. Don't stop. Don't edit. Don't think. Just keep writing. So I didn't even know what channeling was way back then, but that's what I was doing. And at that point, I was very aware of three portals in my apartment. And when they would wake me up around three in the morning to start writing because they said it was the best time. And then I could see the energy forms coming through. And then I could feel them standing over my shoulder. And my body would ring with chills for like 15 minutes because I was not acclimated to their higher vibration. And over time, I did become acclimated to it. But in the beginning, I just remember sitting there and my body would just ring with chills for like 15 minutes. So this is how the autobiography of an extraterrestrial saga book series came about. So there's four books out in the series now. And it's everything you wanted to know about what's out there in the universe in conjunction with how Earth plays into that. And a big part of it is through its lead character, which is a Pleiadian Titan named Tehran, who is actually teaches at the college level at the University of Melchizedek. And he is a teacher for starseeds and for mighty messengers. So starseeds come in, they incarnate, they're from other worlds, they're fully conscious beings, they incarnate into not their full soul, but a portion of their soul, about 14%, is incarnated. And then as they grow, they too have a spiritual mission, and they will have a very spiritual awakening. They could have several. I've had two so far. I had another one in 2014. And so they just keep taking you to the next level and the next level. And as you grow spiritually, Everyone else around you also starts to grow because they see what you're doing and they start asking questions. And I would share, like I'm sharing with you, I shared everything with all of my friends and family. And I used to have gigantic spaghetti parties and I would find a ufologist to come over and we'd pop in VHS cassette tapes and they would tell everything. And then I would tell about my experiences. And it's interesting, a lot of my friends back then, nobody ever poo-pooed me or anything like that. But they said, 
they felt that it was strange, but today they say it's amazing because now I'm just like you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so meaning growing spiritually and becoming aware, you become awake and you connect into source, you connect into this cosmic mind internet of all the different beings that are out there just waiting for people to wake up so that they can make the connection. So that's how those books came about. And there'll be seven books in total in the end, four out now, the website's autobiography of unanet.com. And people can check them out there. And they're fully illustrated. I had all the books. I worked with an artist because I was seeing everything so visually. I worked with an artist to bring the extraterrestrials, their spaceships inside and outside, their home worlds, landscapes, things like that. To I needed to bring it and put it in the book. So each book has over 80 illustrations in it. Mm. And that's why I tried to chock full a lot of the covers with the color. So people can see them in color because they're just beautiful, beautiful in color. Right on. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like it's been a hell of a ride, man. And I look forward to digging into that autobiography series as well. But as for the extraterrestrial species almanac, the one that I am most familiar with and spent my uh, last <laughs> week really digesting, I mean, yes. 82 different alien races. This is obviously a lot of research. But let me ask you about that process and how you separate the truth from the fiction, because we know there's a lot of deception in this, in this area. We have nefarious beings pretending to be good. We have beings that mean no harm, but scare the shit out of the people they visit. We have intelligence agencies trying to steer the ET conversation in ways that suit them. We got people making up stories because they want attention. What sort of discernment methodology did you use here? How did you decide what was credible and what wasn't? Well, I picked the number 82 for one reason. I had, from all my years of research, and this is being immersed in the UFO world and knowing and meeting and becoming friends with a lot of the top ufologists. And going on a lot of cases and learning and meeting abductees, meeting contactees, seeing people who were scared out of their wits, seeing people who were having the most benevolent contacts, women becoming impregnated with either gray children, reptilian children, and human children without ever having sex. And they knew what it was because they would be in the dream state and there would be a beautiful male having sex with them. And then at the point of climax, the being would reveal itself and they would see what it was. So, Hello. yeah. And a lot of these beings that are more nefarious, they have this telepathic hypnosis that they can use on people by using their eyes and doing the stare and getting people to comply to their will. Now, I will tell you, out of all the cases I have ever read, people complied to the will, except for Travis Walton. Mm. So when the being, when he found himself on the table, 
and there were two of these gray creatures, and he sort of woke up, and he thought he was in the hospital because everything was blurry, and, and he felt very weak, and he felt commotion around him. But when his eyes focused and he saw these two gray beings, he threw his arm out and it hit a table, which bumped into them, and they went backwards, and he jumped off the table, grabbed something off of a little table, you know, where they had little instruments to use as a weapon, and the beings tried to do this telepathic hypnosis on him, but he fought it, and he won. So it's interesting that, I guess, as long as you don't look directly into their eyes or force yourself away or do it, that you absolutely are able to shy away from it. But here's the thing. So again, there were many races, and I just had to pick and choose which ones to sort of put in, because the Apunians or the Alpha Centaurians, they say they know 1,019,000 civilizations that they know of in the universe. But then... The Urantia book, which is a quite extensive book on the universe, says that Earth's registry number in the number of planets is 5,342,482,337,666. So if we're a registry number of planets, there could be more. Because if that's our number, right? And we're this planet that's sort of like way over on the edge of the galaxy or our solar system. So I decided to use 82 because I listened to Paul Hellyer give many speeches. And in a few speeches one time early on, he said he knew of 57 races. But then later on, he said he knew of 82 races. So. Yes, I interviewed him myself, and he was from the Canadian Department of Defense, right? Minister. Yes, Minister of Defense in Canada, and he's come out very publicly. He's in his 90s now, and he talks about all of this and that, you know, he's bringing this information forward about all these different races. So I decided to honor him and just use... 82 races. And then what I had to do is decide, okay, now, which races do I want to compile and bring in? So the next step was figuring out what races. I've studied a lot of contactees over the years. And so some of my favorite books, a lot of people don't know this, but when Colonel Wendell Stevens was alive, he made over 60 contactee books with people who were having physical contact with extraterrestrials all around the world. So I picked several that I really liked out of those books and then got permission from his daughter, who now runs his whole organization. And all of those books are available on their website, ufophotoarchives.com, because they're not in really physical books anymore unless you find them on the Internet. But you can get them in PDF format there. But there were so I picked the most interesting races that I wanted to talk about, which were the Aryans, which were actually 
an Asian race, and they're from Aldebaran. And then there was an Itapurian race, and their planet was called Itabira. And at one point, one of their world was dying ecologically. And so they found some other inhabitable planets, three planets. And so in timed increments, they started moving their population, animals, aquatic life, plant life, insects, everything over into one world. And then they decided to use the second world was where they would house all their machinery that would build things that they would use because they found that machinery was causing cancer in their society. And then the third one, they used that as a heart center that would send love to the new planet as well, which I found very interesting. And at a certain point in the early 50s or 60s, they were here in the Amazon because they're always looking for new flavors in fruits and things. They don't eat solid foods anymore, so they drink liquids, and they're always looking to create new hybrids of fruits and stuff. So they were in the Amazon and commingled with the Amazon tribes and things back then. Another race was the Clermers, and another place is UFO Contact, which was from a planet called Koldas, K-O-L-D-A-S. The Umites. The Umites were in contact with many people, and especially Italians. They were down there in Italy and were meeting with a lot of beings. In fact, there's actually a photograph of one of the Umites. And if you Google it, He's standing in front of sort of like a forest, and he's wearing shorts and sort of a Hawaiian shirt, but he's eight feet tall, a human guy with dark hair. And then there's the regalians, which are from Rigel, and they're sort of this lizard-human-type beings, and they had abducted or brought on board. They didn't do anything to her. They brought the 14-year-old Cherokee girl on board craft, and they hooked her up to a telepathic machine that the being also wore. And then they were able to have a conversation, and they shared who they were so that she would share it, and then the world would kind of get to know who they were. So that was a very positive experience. And because she was wearing that telepathic device, she was able to remember the entire incident in vivid detail. And then one of the other books that I really liked was from Planet Yarga, but it's spelled I-A-R-G-A-S. And they're sort of like an aquatic race that used to live in the sea. And their skin is similar to a seal's skin. And anyway, they're interesting. But one of my favorites are the Clarions. They're a human race, and, and they're actually living here on the planet right now. And Maurizio Cavallo, who was in contact with them, actually took pictures of them and allowed me to reproduce them in the book. So there's a male named Sewell who is in the book, and then the female in the book, her name is Nelfa, 
N-H-E-L-P-H-A. And she deals with astrobiology and chronoastronomy. It's the measurements between dimensions when they travel interdimensionally. Wow. Um, so sorry to cut you off, but this is all so interesting. And uh, as far as the Clarions are concerned, I got the book right here. I'm looking at these two images. They are pretty interesting. They look, you know, pretty human. But these images, they kind of have a, a quality where they fade around the edges. How are these photographs created or i mean how were they captured because they look a little there's no background to these photos yeah they were captured i believe on polaroids so i don't know exactly where they were taken if they were taken on board a craft if they were Whatever, but a lot of all the photos that he has of all the beings, and there's many more than just these two, some had a lighter background, or they were also sort of like this dark background. Like, it would be interesting to see Nelfa, what she looks like with hair, for instance, because it's really just highlighting her beautiful round face, her small, petite features with these beautiful almond-shaped blue eyes. Right. Her eyes are pretty interesting, for sure. And I guess for people who can't see them themselves, the best thing I could equate these to is like 90s glamour shots. They kind of have that uh, that quality to them, but they're from the neck up, and there's just the face, and there's nothing around the outside, just blackness. And Yes, and... Maybe they wanted it that way. I I have no idea. Maurizio only speaks Italian, so I don't speak Italian. But when I would converse with him, I would have to Google translate everything and correspond with him via email. Hmm. But that's an interesting question. I will find that out, <laughs> you know, because I'd like to know that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is really awesome. And it would be super interesting to run these 82 that you chose past Paul Hellyer and see how many are a match for the ones he has cataloged. Cause I'm sure there's overlap, but I'm also sure there's gotta be some differences, which means maybe we're dealing with three figures of, uh, you know, maybe we're in the triple digits at this point. But one of the most provocative things you say in the book to me is that there are 120 subterranean cities on the earth, which several of these beings inhabit and I love the idea that there is a rich world of life beneath our feet, but I don't have a lot to go on and certainly couldn't catalog 120 subterranean cities. But where does this information come from about the inner Earth and what more could you tell us in this regard? Well, Diane Robbins wrote two books, one on Agartha and one also on Telos. So Telos is the capital city to Agartha, and it's located one mile beneath Mount Shasta. So she wrote those books about that. So I talked to her, and I learned a lot of the information from her. But there was also, at one point, there was a woman who lived in Telos, who brought forth information as well. And I guess there's a law that you can come up and you can visit, but you can't marry a surface dweller. 
And she fell in love with someone. And because she married him, she now has to live on the surface. So she's pretty much a recluse right now. I have one friend who is friends with her. So I do hear things through word of mouth, which is interesting because I really wanted to interview her being growing up and being a part of the inner cities, the inner dwellings of this. And I have to say, you know, when I was first waking up and thinking about how do they live on the inner earth and how does that work and all of this, it is also been explained that all of the planets in our solar system are populated on the inside. Mm -hmm. So these beings who are fully conscious have very advanced technologies. They can create whole floors. They can make a planet into a spaceship, literally, to live on. It just can't travel around. So they can terrace floors. They can create, like in Telos, I can't remember if they had a crystal. I think they had a crystal that would burn for like a million years. There's also been talk of the glowing rocks that are these giant boulders that are stored beneath the Vatican that they found at a certain point. So there's that illumination. But there's also these things that they create called synchrotron skies. So it gives the appearance of infinity if you're on the interior on a spacecraft or a planet. And a synchrotron sky would go from day to night and sync to the outside rotation of the planet as well. Or some floors would just stay daylight. Some floors would just stay nighttime and that type of stuff. And all of my guides had explained that to me as well. And then later when I met Dr. Frank Stranges, who was in contact uh, throughout his whole life with Valiant Thor, He also would tell me about being on board uh, the starship and things like that and explain these things that I had already known about. But it was getting just another confirmation of how these things look and how they work. And if an ET race wants to come here and set up a temporary base, they can pick a section of the Earth that's not populated down there and they can use an energy and just make the bottom and the top go to the height that they want. And then they can sort of just move in and do what they're going to do there. And then when they leave, they just sort of put it all back together. Hmm. It's all fascinating stuff. I mean, it sounds wonderfully like science fiction, but as you get more and more into this and you start hearing more and more stories and more people who have been brought on board craft and seeing different things, It makes you wonder. So I always say what Dr. Frank said, always keep an open mind. Yes, I totally agree that it is very important to be open-minded. I think most of this audience definitely is. But it's also hard to take so many accounts and stories at face value and not have some sort of filtering process for which ones ring truer, which ones uh, might just be someone with a vivid imagination 
writing books or pulling things from the ether that maybe aren't exactly messages, it is tough. So I'm definitely open-minded, but I still struggle when, you know, I talk to some people, the universe just seems so full of life. How could you possibly miss it? And then I'm sitting down here like all I've ever seen are humans. I don't know. It gets tough. (laughs) Well, a lot of extraterrestrials are human. So, I mean, over my years, I can count on one hand where I was somewhere and I looked and I was like, that person is not from here. Not meaning they're not a starseed, meaning they literally walked off a craft. And they know when you're picking up on that because they'll sort of turn and smile and and that will just be your interaction. But I've heard so many different stories and wonderful stories. I mean, there was a man, he's in his 70s now, and his whole life from age 17 was an immense spiritual journey because he started wondering about the universe when he was 17 and wondering, how did we get here? I wonder if there are beings elsewhere. I wonder this. And all of a sudden, he started seeing a silver disc craft in the sky glinting. And he would see this for a while, and he would see it daily or sporadically. And then one day, a five foot six blonde haired guy with blue eyes walked up to him and said, we've been listening to your thoughts, and I'm here to answer all your questions. And so he threw out, like it was, I believe, a seven or eight month period, had 44 contacts with this being, and this being informed him that he was a created being, And what he did is he did answer all of this man's questions about life in the universe and about all of that. So I've been in contact with this man and listened to all his stories. He never, he doesn't want to make his story public or anything like that. He felt that that was just for him and for his spiritual journey, but he does share a lot of wonderful spiritual wisdoms and things like that. So there's just so many people. And since I've written this book, so many people have sent me beings that they've seen that I've never heard of, and they would describe what they look like and this and that. And So I totally get what you're saying. I think everyone just, it's your own filter. I look and read everything, and I never put anything down. I just say, Everything is based in some kind of truth. And if I keep an open mind, I know if I meet an extraterrestrial someday, how I will discern that is what my gut tells me. Fair. (laughs) Because I know when I was having my encounters with the master teachers, all I felt was the emanation of unconditional love. But then, when you are met with somebody that is not of this love, you will feel it in your gut. And then that's when your receptors go up. So right on, right on. Well, I guess I would ask, you know, 
being in the ufology space for so long, it seems pretty clear that we do have some form of intelligence agencies that are trying to control the narrative. We have involvement from you know, military folks that at some times seem to have deceived people in this space. We know disinformation gets seeded in the alternative community. It's really unfortunate, but we know that stuff exists to some degree. How do you keep that stuff from from mixing in with the truth because that's so key to really getting a, a proper handle on things well none of that pertained to what i was writing but what you can discern is finding contactees if it was certain races and what their experiences were but then you see I mean, I, I can't come up with like a specific scenario of what you're talking about, but I do understand what you're talking about because there are misinformation people out there. Philip Class was the guy who did it for like a million years until he passed away. And I mean, the things he said were just like so ridiculous. I remember not even being into this stuff in my early 20s and seeing him talking about something and saying, that guy is like getting paid or something because what he just said doesn't make sense. Right. Right. So, and we know, we know it's all come out. I mean, Richard Dolan, everyone has brought all of, you know, Philip Class's associations with Menzel and everything out into the open. So who would be those people today? I mean, the internet, they plant a bug. People, and getting confused and this and that. And what I say is you just hold your spiritual center. I meditate. That's how I hold my spiritual center. I know who I am. And I use that to be my Geiger counter and to be my guide. And that will never steer you wrong. So when seeing the information, now I have to tell you, I've read a lot of information that you go, God, wow, what? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know. So I would say if it has to do with extraterrestrials and things like that, I mean, there's been a lot of people who have come out. You know, Philip Corso came out and talked about it. We just lost Clifford Stone, who was interfacing with ETs and wrote about it, who was just a great guy. He just passed away, I think, last week. Yeah, very sad, very sad. I saw that news, too. And when it comes to these 82 different alien races, it seems like most of them are benevolent. But of course, not all are. And I am always intrigued by the darkness. Of these alien races, which do you consider most ill-intentioned? Which are the most nefarious, if you had to pick one or two, and, and why? Well, the... Most tyrannical ones are the reptilian races, and there's many offshoots of reptilian races. I put the draconians in there, and they're basically void of emotion. So they're service to self-beings, meaning if it benefits me, I take. I rape, I pillage, I take. Now... What I can't get into in the book is because a publisher just wanted a thumbnail review is all the sidebars. So 
if people are really interested in those stories, there are plenty of them from people who have had experiences with reptiles. I have met several people that they attack them in their dream states to cause fear. They usually do that to star seeds. They even do it to star seed children. As a matter of fact, there was a case of some family that I know. These reptiles were chasing them, the boy and the father, in the same night. They were both having the same dreams of this, and they came to me and asked me about it. And I said, well, and mind you, this kid is like a brainiac beyond brainiacs and already was speaking five-star languages at just after 10 years old and drawing star maps. So, you know, I just said, look, you're a heavy-duty starseed kid, and they're just trying to throw you off your game, so you just have to ignore it. Hmm. And you can actually sit and meditate, and you can actually put up a protective shield, and you can bring in your angelic beings, if you want to call them that. You can do that and have that protection around you. Whatever works, protection is protection. So it just depends on whatever your belief system is, whatever your religion is. You can use whatever that is. It all works. It's all the same. You know, and then it stopped with them, which was fantastic because they just didn't buy into it. When you buy into it, it will continue to happen and get worse. Hmm. Right on. Well, avoid the reptilians. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to the, the good guys, you know, the majority of the races in the book that do seem to be allies to humanity and are trying to raise our consciousness to the level that we can join the big federation in the sky, you even say that about the inner earth races, that the 120 subterranean cities unified mission is to help us realize our fully conscious selves and ascend. Well, I love that idea. But when you look around, people are more polarized and divided than ever. IQs seem to be down. Autism and autoimmune disease are through the roof. Emotional stability seems low when you see all the videos of people freaking out these days. Lots of disdain for people who don't agree with each other politically. And if we have 120 unified inner Earth civilizations and several advanced space races and spiritual entities all working to get us there to ascension... Why are they doing such a poor job? They are not doing a poor job. They are doing the job beautifully because they can't come here and do it for us. So this is why there are starseed programs where beings from elsewhere can come and incarnate on a world. Then they start to have an experience being here in duality, and they start quickening that duality. And when they ultimately, through generation after generation, then people start to become more geared towards being fully conscious and activating the five dormant chakras above the head, and they start integrating within the body and start working and turning towards that. So I myself worked and went towards that and so brought those five chakras in 
And at that time, a heart indentation grew on my forehead, which is still there to this day, because now you're using the heart to rule the mind instead of the mind, the ego doing service to self. So all of these races are here. When we start to change and we start to shift over, it's going to get ugly before the calm. It always does because people are now taking their power back into their hands and not letting people dictate to them anymore. Mm. Right. So this is a process that goes through generation after generation after generation. Now, if you think about it, from the 70s to here, it's been a gigantic spiritual leap for Earth as a collective consciousness. Now, of course, we still have all the fractions and, and we hear, I mean, I hear horror stories all the time about things, but think about what an advanced race who is monitoring the planet sees on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And how that affects them, because they're seeing the horrors that none of us will ever see, like the real horrors. <laughs> so like in their energy systems, they have resonation fields that are on their craft. And these in these resonation fields, it helps them to clear the trauma of what it would be like if we saw it, right? But they still have the feeling that is attached to it. But it's not going to be where you're so possessed by this devastating events that you can't function through these resonation fields are able to function. And it is very interesting for them to study duality down here because there's not a whole lot of duality throughout the universe. There's the dark races, yes, and, and those are dualistic, but primarily the universe is benevolent and also fully conscious on various levels. So that's part of what the University of Melchizedek is. It's the universe's university that teaches about other worlds and about other planets. And you can, when you finish your mission on Earth, and you go back to Melchizedek, you can figure out what planet you want to go study on so that your soul will grow. Will you go to an unconditional loving planet and learn unconditional love? Will you go to a more scientifically based planet? Will you go to a planet that likes doing measurements and things of the universe that gets a little technical? I mean, there's all different choices and things that people can learn from. So it's just a big school. Even the Clarions say that. They even told Maurizio that. Interesting, interesting. And yeah. in, in terms of uh, it getting dark and ugly before the Ascension, well, there's a lot of people talking about that and about timing and a certain potency to where we are right now. Maybe some people are always saying that. But I have gotten a bit caught up in the idea that we are at an important point in the cycle. 
And when I see everything that's gone on in 2020 and this new type of DNA altering vaccine, it makes me wonder what's really going on. One curious uh-huh. thing you say in the book is that DNA is more precious than any alloy across the cosmos and genetic engineering and manipulation are standard practice. Well, Absolutely. <laughs> do you see this preoccupation with human DNA and ascension relating in any way to the global rollout of an RNA-altering vaccine? Well, I have heard all of those things as well. I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. Again, (laughs) is it true? Is it not true? Where does that truth lie with each individual? Now, I was having a discussion with Laura Eisenhower about this. And she said, people are very, I guess a lot of her listeners were very trepidatious about receiving the vaccine just for that very purpose. And she said, but I believe if you had had the vaccine, that you can also transform it through your own thought and spiritual practice. And that is also true. I also believe that because I know when I went through cancer over 11 years ago that the chemotherapy, because I was seeing one of the top herbalists in town here, he was a Chinese medicine man who was not Chinese, but he was a master for people who had cancer. So what he told me is that the chemo drugs, because I had to tell him what all the chemo drugs they were shoving through me, and there was a whole lot of them. He said, that's going to damage your DNA. And he said, but through time and through herbs, you will get your DNA back. And I think it took about three or four or five years where through eating correctly alkalining your body with alkaline water and doing these herbs, and I still take them to this day, that they were repaired. Now, that is a very, I'm so glad you brought that up because I am going to ask him that very question and see what he says. Well, I would appreciate that. I mean, it just seems too coincidental that a lot of people are talking about this potency of this plan to have us ascend. And then it seems like there are nefarious forces on this plane that want to keep that from happening. And, you know, bada bing, bada boom, you got this uh, global rollout for a vaccine that I don't know that the justification is really there for. And who knows? I'm not a doctor, but it seems very interesting that you got to vaccinate everyone on the planet. And yet if you were to ascend everyone on the planet, it would also include obviously a global campaign. So it seems like there's good forces and bad forces trying to battle it out here. <laughs> yes, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And lots of people that I know were thrilled to get the vaccine and now they feel safe. And I know others that are refusing it, saying I will never take that vaccine. Yeah, everybody's got a deal with their own level of comfort and make their own decisions, but it is curious. It is. And to switch gears a little bit, I also wanted to ask you about your page on clones. You write that 
If clones are heavily implanted and joined with a group mind, either artificial or advanced alien, they become robotoids. The Dark Orion Draconian Empire creates, uses, and sells robotoids. To protect themselves, Orion Draconians use clones to do their dirty work. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, there's a lot there, man. From the nuances of how clones can be used to the actions of this Dark Orion Draconian Empire, where does this information come from and how do we know it's accurate and true? Well, this information comes from my own channeling. For instance, when I'm doing a book, I will be given a master from Melchizedek, who will be the overseer of that book. So when I was writing about the clones, they definitely wanted the entry of the clones in there. So these are all these different types of really strange AI that are out there in the universe and that there are many nefarious ways that they can use them as well, and that they can send them out in crafts to do their dirty work, whatever that would be, and therefore they're not going to get harmed for it. If something were to happen, or if they got into a battle, or something of that nature. So... There's a lot that went on, if people want to study it more, that went on in the Orion Wars. There's a lot on the internet about that. It's fascinating. A lot of things with clones. I've met some people who worked in cloning, and they were telling me that basically... The first generation of clone has to really sort of be taught, and then they mate that generation with a human. I don't know if they do it the old-fashioned way or with egg and sperm. And then what they do is generation after generation, they start to become more and more human. But what they were finding in the beginning is that there's not a soul attached, right? So this is why when reptilians, greys, and all of that, why the women are impregnated for that two to three months is they have to wait for the soul to attach before they take it. Hmm. Therefore, they started experimenting with putting animal souls in, and then the dark ones put disincarnated evil spirits in or people from there so it can go on and on and on it again it's whatever you want to believe it's up to you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right but i have met with a lot of people in high positions because of what i write and they said it's amazing the more you become awake the more that you realize it's not even near science fiction. It's weirder. (laughs) Yes. Now, mind you, once, I will tell you, when I was in Sedona, and I had taken three friends there, and we were going to drive back. It was late at night. I was driving them back into Boynton Canyon to see the craft come up and out because there's a a base back there. And when we were driving, turning into the canyon, remember those old sort of 
tan cars that the military used that were four door. Yes, I, yes. I, I, I don't know what they're called, but one of those cars with two officers sitting in the front. And I looked at the two guys sitting in the back and I literally, my whole body sunk because I knew they were clones. Oh man. You know, when you just know, you just know your body rings with chills. And I lit like right now talking about it. My whole body is like chilled. And I said to my friend, Oh my God, those were clones. Did you see them? And they were like, yes, I did. Because they're void of a soul. There's just no soul in there. So you see that, you know, I mean, but Sedona is filled with all kinds of strange stories like that. So I don't, have you ever had Tom Dongo on your show? No, I haven't, but I will add him to the list for sure. Oh, you got to get Tom Dongo. I will, I will give you his info. He's, he is the resident person who knows everything that goes on there. He's awesome. (laughs) Very wild. I've heard a lot of stories about Sedona and portals, and I definitely think I had some Catholic school teachers that were void of a soul. So maybe I've seen some clones myself. It's hard to say, but um, man, you know, I did want to ask you, you mentioned this cosmic university called Melchizedek a couple of times. It does show up in the book as well. Does this have anything to do, does this relate in any way to the author Drunvalo Melchizedek? Do the, the aliens call this university Melchizedek? It seems odd that this word would show up in these two contexts. Well, Melchizedek has actually been brought to earth several times throughout the generations. It goes back even into a lot of the old Hebrew texts, the Melchizedek priests, that type of thing. So Drunvalo does teach about Melchizedek and all of that. Now, my stuff is through Tehran, who is also from Melchizedek and who is a teacher there. So these teachings are a wider term in the autobiography of an extraterrestrial saga books that bring you into this galaxy or solar system that has 490 planets, which are all university planets. So this is sort of like the school, the tech, which the architect was Father Melchizedek. And also in the book, I put a picture of Father Melchizedek and also a picture of Makaventa Melchizedek, who's one of the top teachers as well. But yes, I would say I almost met Drunvalo once when I was in Sedona, but he got very ill and had to cancel our meeting. But I haven't followed his stuff, but I know a lot of people that love and adore him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just figured I would ask because it's such a interesting word, Melchizedek. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, this is sort of a random question, but it's something that I always want to ask people who have careers in Hollywood. And you've got three decades of experience in casting in particular yeah. and have worked on some great projects. The original Dune movie, Total Recall, Picket Fences, and the American movie classic Tremors 3, just to name a few. Very impressive stuff, and congratulations. Thank you. But you got it. I interview a lot of journalists, though, who talk about a dark undercurrent of abuse in Hollywood, especially when it comes to child actors. Is this something you've ever seen from the inside or could shed any light on for people? 
Only when those kids either later in life or something step forward. I mean, it all began with Jackie Coogan's parents spending his money and he was penniless when he became an adult when he should have been a very rich kid because, you know, he was from the Little Rascals and it was in tons of movies. So later, what they did is now every kid has to have what they call a Coogan account. And that account is where that child's money goes into a bank account until they are of the legal age and then they can access their money. Now, there's so many different things. It depends on when people and what kind of groups they hang out in. Do they go to the darker clubs with drugs and alcohol and get caught into that? The worst is, is that once they've been on a hit TV show, they can't find work ever again. And they end up having to sort of reenter society and work in normal jobs. And, and that makes them go a little bonkers and some people not. But as of abuse, I mean, I haven't heard of any kind of physical abuse or things like that. But I think I can't remember Corey Haim or Corey Feldman's stories, but there may have been a lot of abuse in those. But right, um, right. I'd have to revisit those. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've heard those stories uh, that people come out with, um, like both of them you mentioned. And it is sad. These kids are uh, hanging around groups they shouldn't be hanging around with, usually because their parents want to make some money. And that is unfortunate. So when someone's been in the industry, I'm always curious if they've ever seen anything like that because there's a lot of dark stuff in the world. And people like me and the listeners just want to know what's going on out there, you know? Yes. And I, if I see a a new parent or something, and if I have met their kid and I, I always want to meet the parents, I always ask them what they're doing just to make sure that they're on the right track and that they're not getting taken because there's so many of these little places that say, well, if you give us $10,000 a year, we're going to get your kid pictures and classes and this. But what they don't know is who's ever teaching those classes is not qualified to teach those classes. And that photographer is probably going to charge an arm and a leg. And, and it gets into all of these other things. So I always try and make sure that nobody gets taken. And I do a lot of shows and things. And I do a lot of huge speaking engagements for industry people as well. And just make sure that they really know what the score is so that they don't spend a lot of money unnecessarily and get in with these fly-by-night organizations that come in to rape them of their money. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Well, hey, dark stuff and definitely a detour, but with a career like yours, I had to ask. But very <laughs> sure. impressive stuff you've been a part of. I mean, where would we be without Tremors 3? <laughs> I know. That was so much fun. The Ass Blasters. Yes. <laughs> Man. Well, on that note, you know, you did a great job with Stranger at the Pentagon as well. I found uh, this book super interesting for sure. Before I cut you loose, what more can you tell people about your other books and how to keep tabs on what you got going on out there? Sure. 
So the Autobiography of an Extraterrestrial Saga, there's four books in the series. If people want to order them and I autograph them and personalize them, they can buy it all with one click or buy the books individually at autobiographyofunanet.com. If they want to buy the E.T. Almanac, or I just came out with another book because I did, I was a casting director on The Silence of the Hams, which was a spoof movie 25 years ago that just got re-released on DVD. And we did all the commentary and, and did a documentary and the whole thing. I did a companion book because I took a million pictures on the set and I hired every huge comedian known to man. Those two books are on the same website, autobiographyofet.com, and you click on other books and both those books are there. And then all things Stranger at the Pentagon are at strangeratthepentagon.com. You can watch the short film there. I have all the remaining books that are out of print. Dr. Frank, that if anyone's interested, they can also get them there. Or if you have Amazon Prime, you can see Stranger at the Pentagon on Amazon Prime. Right on, right on. Well, I got to ask, as a big fan of comedy and the comedian scene, can you name a couple of people that you hired for that project? Oh, God, yes. It's so much fun. Dom DeLuise played Hannibal Cannibal Lecter. Billy Zane played Joe, middle initial D, Foster. <laughs> and Mel Brooks, Phyllis Diller, uh, Bubba Smith from the Police Academy movies, Charlene Tilton, Joanna Pakula, Martin Balsam, Shelley Winters, both huge Academy Award winners, John Astin. God, I can't think of them all, but that that's a lot of them. Yeah, that's so a lot right there. It was, oh, and Larry Storch. Oh, my God, yeah. Larry Storch. Larry Storch, every day on the set when I'd see him, he'd go, hey, Spaceman. Yeah. And I'd say, why do you call me Spaceman? Now, none of my books that were out at that time. He goes, because you are a Spaceman. And I said, okay, Larry. So it was just strange. He always called me Spaceman. He's still alive, too. Good for him. Yeah. So, Well, man, seems like you've just had uh, quite a life, and it's been a lot of fun talking to you. Hell of a ride. Very wild. And thanks for writing this book, and thanks for talking to me today. Take care out there, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I had a great time. It flew by. Bye, everyone. 82 skidoo or something like that. Is that a phrase? I don't know, but hey, Craig Campobasso doing the work that needs to be done. I actually remember back when Stephen Greer did the Disclosure Project, one of my favorite early internet rabbit holes. One of the most out there things that was said was when Clifford Stone said this. Describe what they look like. I could, but it would probably take a whole lot of time. The reason I state that, when I got out in 1989, we had cataloged 57 different species. You have individuals that look very much like you and myself that could walk among, among us and you wouldn't even notice the difference. Wild. And he later said that, to those in the know, they were known as the Heinz 57, 57 races. And that clip, probably more than any other 
in that time frame of like late high school, early college, totally stuck with me. And here we are, years later, we got at least another 25 more. And as Craig said, this is coming from Paul Hellyer, a previous THC guest and the ex-Canadian Minister of Defense. I mean, that's a hell of a position to hold and be saying stuff like this, isn't it? If somebody questioned me, I would probably look to that as the strongest point we could make. And I know people who have had visitation experiences from something they consider to be alien. Over the course of this show, we've heard how many stories at this point? So I'm pretty damn sure we're not alone. I think it's actually kind of silly to even say that we are. And we'll probably never totally get past this question of category when it comes to aliens or spiritual entities, because as we've said, technology usually allows for communication at long distances before travel. So if you got some sort of receiver and you could hear some alien message, maybe they even give you some technology that they offer up. Does it matter that you could draw a pentagram, work yourself into an ecstatic state, read a grimoire, and also interact with a voice that could tell you things you didn't know before, and advise you on a language of symbols and processes to make the contact more sustained, without any kind of electronic receiver, way before the radio or anything like that was ever invented? I don't know. And when many of these species in Craig's Almanac are derived from channeling, the categorization seems even less important. But we got some beans out there. Nobody doubts that. But in the occult world, even though there are still hierarchies of beans, it does seem like they have some one-offs. You know, specific spirits or beans that usually take the same-ish appearance when they're called up. And there's only one of them. We don't really talk about them having children or parents in any kind of physical, reproductive, multi-generational sense. So I just think, you know, if a person channels one creature of some kind, maybe there isn't even a home world or an entire civilization attached to that experience or that being in some cases. I'm not sure, but I definitely liked going through this almanac just to see what's in it. As we sort of talked about, I still think it's hard to attach a single motivation or philosophy or temperament to an entire specific species, especially when based off just a few encounters. I mean, think about the flip side. Most other beings would be encountering our CIA or our military intelligence or the Invisible College. And I don't know if regular folks have their same temperament or motivations at all. Plus, so many of these species just look humanoid and even less diverse than races we have across this single planet. I find that a bit weird, too. I got a lot of questions, but I do applaud the effort. It's not an easy undertaking, and it's just information to add to the stack. You guys know I like talking subterranean, and that was definitely a theme that came up among these 82 races for sure. And Craig is not shy about talking about some pretty epic things. I'm not so sure about some of the images, though. Of course, many of them in the book are drawings and renderings, but when it comes to the photos of the clarions, for example, that Craig brought up, I had to grab the book and flip to that page and see what images he was speaking about specifically, and I don't know. I would have some questions for Mauricio before I signed off on that assessment that they were real photographs. I asked Craig a bit about vetting things and disinfo and discernment, 
because I think that stuff is important when you're trying to present a truth that is so often dealing with ridicule on one side, as well as manipulation and charlatans on the other. And yes, we might have different opinions on which aspects are more or less credible, but that's all right. Agreeing that we are having interactions with a variety of life forms is common ground enough for me. I think if we push and pull on things a bit, though, we see what can take the pressure and what can't. We look at the sources for some things and determine their authenticity that way. Because I do want to get to the truth, and I am kind of losing my patience waiting for the dominant of wider inclusion, or even just interest when it comes to non-human intelligences. It should get way more attention and interest than it does, but I could say that about all aspects of life and what this even is, our environment, the death process, what are we, and the nature of consciousness. There are so many great questions and mysteries to life that when I see news headlines about the host of The Bachelor stepping down, I am just disgusted with the things that we focus on sometimes as a culture. But whatever, it's all good fun, and Craig definitely has a passion for beans behind the veil, and I appreciate him putting such a thing together. In the second hour, I tried to pull out the strangest and least known things I could find, and we talked about stuff like the Cyclops race from Planet 555, the nefarious Orion Empire, the connection between Valiant Thor and Admiral Richard Byrd, Craig's contact with the Byrd family, Alfred K. Bender and the Men in Black, Craig's experiences at the E. Seti Ranch, the stranger animal and insect races, inner Earth civilizations, and the other planets of our solar system, Craig's astral projection to the inner Earth, the civilizations under Mount Shasta, and the Alpha Obino Royal Drax, also the name of my old high school punk band, weirdly enough. So join Plus. If you listen to this show, you are missing so much each and every episode. I've told you this before. You can do the math. But with that, I'm getting out of here. Leave me a message of your own weird encounters and grand theories at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail and find me hanging out at thehiresideforum.com. Enjoy the weekend, and I'll see you soon. Your move, Clarions, Larians, and Space Brothers in the Sky. Your fucking move. When you see weird lights outside of your door Something sits on your chest when you sleep might be a pattern you've been through before mm-hmm. oh you might have those screen memories darling wait till we get some proof still we'll make them see and baby i try the camera
it's not just a dream Cause they never put me back exactly the same way